The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm your guest host today, Linda House, the Executive Vice President for External Affairs here at the Cancer Support Community, filling in today for Kim Tibaldo. The Wellness Community and Gilda's Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at over 170 locations worldwide, online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org, And also on a telephone helpline, and that number, which we will repeat later in the show, is 1-888-793-9355. In 2004, there will be an expected 1.6 million people diagnosed with cancer. And cancer survivors in 2000, I'm sorry, in 2014, there will be that many diagnosed. Cancer survivors in 2014 will number about 14.5 million. And with numbers that high, chances are that someone you know or someone in your family has been diagnosed with cancer at some point in their life. Sometimes these cancer diagnoses can occur sporadically, but other times cancer may be in the family because of genetics. For most people, cancer is caused by gene mutations that happen over the course of a lifetime. However, about 10% of all incidences of cancer are caused by inherited gene mutations with increased risk for developing certain types of cancer. People living with these inherited gene changes also have a 50% chance of passing the mutation down to their children. For people living with this high risk of developing cancer, it's important to know all the facts, how to manage this risk, and what treatment options are available. Joining us today to help us talk through living with a high risk of cancer is Lisa Schlager, the Vice President of Community Affairs for FORCE, which stands for Face. Facing Our Risk of Cancer Empowered, which is a national nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the lives of individuals and families affected by hereditary breast and ovarian cancer. And FORCE has been around now for many, many years, and Lisa will tell us more about that. Lisa herself learned that she had a BRCA1 mutation, which she will also tell us more about, um, in 1999, and is considered a previvor of cancer. Thank you so much for being here, Lisa. Thank you for having me. And also joining us today is Karen Hurley, who is in private practice as a licensed clinical psychologist. And Karen, our paths have crossed across, over, over a number of years, and I know that you have extensive experience in the um, cancer space and also with genetics, and you've been a help to many people as you specialize in hereditary cancer risk counseling 
you conduct lectures, workshops, and training sessions. And in your area of, of counseling, you include medical and surgical decisions, fear of genetic testing, anxiety about screening, and coping with the risk of um, a hereditary cancer. So thank you also for joining us, Karen. Oh, yes. Thank you so, so much for having me as well. Lisa, I'm going to start with you and with some of the basics for our listeners. So can you tell us the difference between a hereditary cancer and let's just call it a, an incidental cancer? Certainly. So as you've mentioned, cancer is a relatively common disease. Most families are going to have some family members who've had cancer. Uh, that's just a fact of life. Most cancer that is not due to an inherited gene change is called a sporadic cancer. And it's believed that most, probably about 90% of all cancers, are in fact sporadic. Um, and this means that the cancer doesn't run in the family, and a family member can still be at risk for certain cancers, but it's not due to uh, an inherited or, or genetic cause. Um, sporadic cancer and hereditary cancer differ in certain ways, and it, most importantly, Hereditary cancers often occur earlier than sporadic forms of cancer, and so experts often recommend different screening at a younger age for people who are affected by hereditary cancer in their family. Also, hereditary cancers are caused by gene changes passed on from parents to their children, and other blood relatives might share these same gene changes. So um, while sporadic changes are believed to arise from damage to a gene in the body due to factors such as environmental exposures or diet or hormones or just normal aging, most uh, gene changes um, are not shared or passed on to children versus the hereditary cancer, which in fact is transferred or passed from a mother or a father to their children. There's a 50% chance. Um, individuals who have an inherited gene change may be at higher risk for one or more cancers. And for cancer survivors who have uh, an inherited gene mutation, this can affect cancer treatment options or follow-up care. So, you know, every woman is at risk for cancer. We all know that breast cancer, for instance, in the general population, there's about a 13% lifetime risk. Um, that risk is pretty low before the age of 50. Um, and on the contrary, if you have an inherited genetic mutation, your risk could be as high as 85%. And uh, experts don't agree on those exact lifetime figures um, because they vary from family to family and from mutation to mutation. But people with a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation can have as high as an 85% risk of breast cancer and as high as a 60% risk of ovarian cancer in their lifetime. Um, it's also important to note that people with a hereditary mutation uh, are actually more inclined to get ovarian cancer, whereas maybe only 10% of breast cancers are considered hereditary. 20 to 25% of ovarian cancers are, in fact, considered hereditary. So those are some important differences that I think people should know when, when considering or thinking about hereditary cancers versus incidental or sporadic cancers. Thank you. And I just want to clarify with you just one of the things that you said when you said that they that hereditary cancers typically occur earlier, you're talking about earlier in life, so at a younger age, correct? That is correct. So your average woman may not be really at increased risk. Most women are not going to be at 
increased risk of breast cancer until their 50s or 60s, for instance, in the general population. With families affected by hereditary cancer uh, due to a genetic mutation, we often see cancer striking women at in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. And this is actually a red flag in a lot of cases for hereditary cancer. So for younger women who are diagnosed with breast cancer, um, that's, you know, automatically a red flag for referral to genetic counseling to explore the family history and determine if, in fact, there, there is a hereditary mutation. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think we're going to talk a little bit later about the other types of cancers where um, we've identified a, a hereditary cause. But, you know, I think it's important for even patients who have had melanoma at a young age or um, perhaps a, a young diagnosis of lung cancer. You know, I think our message is, is to be vigilant if you've, had, if you've lost someone in your family at a, at a very early age to cancer. Absolutely, yes. So, so could you tell our listeners, how do you know if a cancer diagnosis is because of an inherited gene and not just a sporadic case of cancer? So the truth is there's no way to know at the surface. Um, there's no way, you know, from the onset to know if cancer is sporadic or hereditary unless you've had genetic testing, which um, has actually screened for and discovered a mutation, a genetic mutation associated with certain cancers. Um, genetic testing for an inherited cancer mutation involves taking typically a blood sample or cheek swab to analyze a person's DNA. Um, BRCA1 and BRCA2 are the most common genes associated with hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, but they've discovered many other gene mutations associated with certain cancers. And so it's important uh, to seek genetic counseling prior to genetic testing to assess risk and then determine which genetic tests are most appropriate for the individual based on family or personal health history. Great. Karen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just quickly move to you. Um, are, there, are there certain warning signs of hereditary cancers that we should be aware of? Okay, so we've all, uh, already covered a couple of those in detail. Uh, the um, early age of onset that you see in families, um, obviously having multiple cancers on the same side of the family, like either on your mother's side or your father's side, is a warning sign. Um, another one is um, if if you have a if you have an organ that comes in a pair, like breasts or ovaries, and you see cancer on both sides, then that's another suggestion that there might be a hereditary um, uh, component. Um, Also, certain combinations, we've been talking about the combination of breast and ovarian cancer as related to the BRCA gene, uh, but there are other combinations that are uh, telltale. Uh, For example, um, colon cancer and gynecologic cancer. So if you see a mix of those on the same side of the family, that could be a potential indicator of Lynch syndrome and would be worth uh, having uh, genetic consultation over. I want to second um, Lisa's um, uh, emphasis on the importance of genetic counseling. Counselors um, are trained to look at patterns uh, in the family history, and they can spot uh, patterns that might not be uh, textbook cases. So some families show uh, very few signs of a hereditary uh, component but would still, to a trained eye, uh, merit testing. Um, there are some families where you see a mix of hereditary and sporadic cancers, so it would be hard to discern which 
genetic test would be appropriate because you're getting a mixed signal. And as Lisa said, that there are, um, you know, each cancer site has multiple uh, uh, genes that are associated with it. So you would want to make sure that any testing you had covered those multiple possibilities. And, and so just to kind of follow up on that, we've got just a couple of minutes before um, break, but um, when, if, if you're a person and you've noticed a pattern of cancer in your family, when should you start to consider having that conversation with your physician or do you go directly to uh, a genetic counselor? Well, um, uh, I would uh, I would do uh, both. Um, it's worth opening the line of conversation with the physician uh, because um, we know that uh, physicians vary in terms of their comfort level and their level of knowledge about hereditary cancer issues. It's a complex um, area of medicine, so uh, you, uh, it's good to have. Uh, maybe multiple members of your team to talk to your physician and talk to a genetic counselor. Talking to a genetic counselor, by the way, does not obligate you to have genetic testing. Their function is to explain the test, explain the pros and cons of testing, and then you get to proceed. Um, An advantage of starting the conversation early is that you can do some digging into the family history um, because it's important to have good records. Uh, If you go back a couple of generations, sometimes the information isn't accurate. You might hear, um, oh, great Aunt Susie had stomach cancer, but maybe in her generation it wasn't polite to talk about ovarian or uterine cancer, and so therefore it would really change the picture to know was it truly a stomach cancer or an ovarian cancer. Or another example is someone who had lung cancer when actually um, that was lung metastases from a breast cancer. Again, that's very important information that might change potentially the genetic test that you were offered. Mm-hmm. Those are, that's, that's a great response. Thank you so much. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's show is sponsored by Celgene, Lilly Oncology, and Onyx. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we're back, we'll hear more from our guest on hereditary cancers. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Communities, Frankly Speaking About Cancer Series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand, 
Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you a breakaway from cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. We're back with Frankly Speaking About Cancer. This is Linda House. I'm your guest host today, filling in for Kim Tibaldo. We're talking with Karen Hurley and Lisa Schlager today about living with a risk of developing cancer. We have heard a lot in the first segment. We appreciate those of you who have joined us again for the second segment. Um, and you know we'll continue having a discussion around this really complex and very, very important set of information uh, for you. We've just finished discussing some of the basics about how do you identify your risk, where do you go if you need to seek help. But I'd like to talk more with our guests today about the options that are available for people who think that they are at risk. So, Lisa, I'm going to start with you. Okay. Can anyone carry the gene mutation that leads to a higher likelihood of cancer, or are there certain ethnicities or groups of people who are more likely than others to carry um, a, a gene mutation? That's a great question, Linda. So the reality is that anybody can carry an inherited genetic mutation uh, that may predispose them to certain cancers, but we do see Certain ethnicities um, and people of certain backgrounds tend to have a, um, a higher uh, probability of carrying these. For instance, um, people uh, of Eastern European Jewish ancestry have the highest known incidence rate of BRCA mutations and hereditary breast and ovarian cancer. For this population, about 1 in 40 people of Jewish descent carry a BRCA genetic mutation, which is about tenfold higher than other populations. The general population probably has a 1 in 500 chance of carrying a BRCA mutation. And because of the high prevalence of these mutations, there are special medical considerations that Jewish people should be aware of, for instance. Other ethnic and geographic populations that have been shown to have increased risk of hereditary cancer mutations are um, Norwegians, Dutch and Icelandic peoples, for instance, um, who are also shown to have higher prevalence of BRCA mutations. That said, it's important to note that there are other mutations other than BRCA. Um, there was a lot of publicity recently about something called the PALB2 mutation, which is also associated with hereditary breast cancer. Um, and as Karen mentioned, Lynch syndrome. There's also Cowden syndrome and numerous others that have been um, discovered. So all of these have different um, warning signs and are associated with different types of cancer. And so that's why seeking uh, the guidance of a genetics expert is so important in determining if, in fact, the cancers in your family might be hereditary because, um, you know, Cowden syndrome is associated with breast fibroid and endometrial, for instance. Um, 
somebody might not put those different cancers together and recognize that they're actually connected in their family, and they might mean that there's a genetic mutation. So, um, again, you know, there are certain ethnicities that are more closely associated with certain mutations, but the best thing to do is talk to a genetic specialist who can help you go through your family health history, determine what cancers run in the family if there are multiple cancers on a specific side, and then determine if genetic testing is, um, is warranted. And also what genetic tests are warranted because there are now different genetic tests for different mutations. And there are also something called multiplex panels now, which are relatively new to the genetic testing uh, arena. And so once, once somebody has been tested and they do realize that they carry a particular risk for developing cancer, what's, what's sort of the next steps for them? So um, that's a good question, and it can be a very personal decision. Um, individuals who go through the testing and receive a, a positive result are typically um, given advice they have three choices. They can undergo increased screening. This is actually, we're talking about individuals now who don't have cancer. Um, there's a different course of action for people who are known as previvors. Those are individuals who are high risk and who don't have cancer versus an individual who has or had cancer known as a survivor. So previvors have three choices. They can undergo increased screening or surveillance. They can take what's known as chemo prevention, which is medication to help prevent cancer, or they can opt for preventive surgeries. Um, those are three very uh, unique decisions, and what's right for an individual at one point in their life may change at a different point in their life. So um, it's important to talk to the genetic counselor and talk to the physicians and determine um, what course of action that individual wants to choose. If somebody has already had cancer, uh, a, a mutation can affect what types of treatment they get. For instance, uh, a new class of drugs called PARP inhibitors is currently under investigation, and it's been shown to be quite effective in people with BRCA mutations, for instance. So um, it could impact somebody's treatment, it could also impact uh, any future surgeries. Um, for instance, if a woman had breast cancer and um, might have no evidence of disease at this point uh, but learns that she's a BRCA mutation carrier, she is also now finding out that she's at very high risk of ovarian cancer. And the NCCN guidelines, NCCN stands for the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, um, they recommend that uh, based on the research and information we have that women, especially with the BRCA1 mutation, remove their ovaries preventively after childbearing or between the ages of 35 and 40. So that could impact uh, somebody who perhaps already has cancer or had cancer in their breast but has not uh, had any cancers in the um, in the reproductive region. Um, so there, there are definitely guidelines out there, and it's a matter of personal decision-making uh, as far as what decisions are made. But there are definitely standards and recommendations um, that we can go into more detail about um, as far as what is recommended for women at high risk of uh, breast and ovarian cancer. 
So, so Karen, we, we heard Lisa go mm-hmm. through a pretty comprehensive list of what um, individuals' choices are. So yes. in the people with whom you work, how do mm-hmm. they go about working through that list and, and really coming up with a decision that's right for them? Um, it's a great question. It's a very complicated one. We could actually do a whole show just on that. And I, in fact, am working on what I'm calling a mini book uh, that I'm hoping will be available for patients uh, within the next six months on this topic. Uh, so, first of all, um, what I've learned in doing this work is that this decision-making process is where you see people at their most individual because you're really doing a check-in to find out what is important to you um, in you know, what are you hoping that the surgery is, is, is going to help you with? So, um, I, you know, the, what I'm looking for when, you know, when I feel like someone's making a good decision is that they can say in a few words what a uh, risk management option is going to do for them. How will it connect them to um, important life goals and connect them to the people in their life that are important? Because we're doing these uh, risk management procedures in order to live long and live well. And so you want to, in, in the heat of the moment of saying, oh, my God, I need to reduce my risk of cancer, sometimes people forget about thinking about what that future is going to be like uh, when, you, when you're starting to uh, sort out uh, your options. So for me, um, a good decision also has three levels, the cognitive, the emotional, and the action level. So the cognitive means understanding the information, understanding what the recommendations are, and uh, being able to um, process that information. Then there's the emotional. How do you feel about making this decision? Um, If you're coming to this with a a history of having lost people or seeing people suffer uh, from this illness, then, uh, you know, you want to look at in what ways is that uh, coloring your decision. And then lastly, the, at the action level, is even once you've processed the information and you know what you want to do, you also want to have the confidence you can carry it out well, that you've got enough support and coping strategies that will make this come out well for you, uh, no matter what the ups and downs are uh, along the way. And, you know, maybe you could just speak to Situations like we're all really familiar about with um, Angelina Jolie and some mm-hmm. of the decisions that that she made, and you know, has the awareness that was raised by Angelina really helped women in this situation um, understand the personal nature of their decisions and really empower them to get to the level of processing that you mentioned. Um, I think it's it's gone both ways. From first of all, she did in the uh, Angelina Jolie in the essay that she published really showed um, her. She shared her thought processes, what was important to her. So she um, did uh, model well that um, uh, that process of thinking through what was important to her. Um, she also did raise awareness that um, having a bilateral mastectomy is a viable option. Uh, you know, the, the, the conversation is different now that we can refer to her. Um, it's a lot easier to explain what I do now. I said, well, you know, Angelina Jolie, those are the kinds of people who come to see me. At the same time, because she made a choice that, you know, might make it seem like that is 
the only choice or the best choice. And, uh, you know, if someone has a different set of uh, life circumstances um, or has uh, some reasons uh, that, um, uh, you know, for, let, let's take, for example, a, uh, a 26-year-old who has just learned that she is a mutation carrier and she's uh, for BRCA and she's dating and is not ready to pursue uh, a, a bilateral mastectomy, or may never be, but uh, but she certainly doesn't want to do it at that time, and would, would rather do intensive screening. That would be an appropriate um, decision. She's thinking about what works for her at this time in her life, and how is this going to connect her to her goal of uh, dating. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Thank you so much. And then when we return from this break, Lisa, I want to. I want to circle back to you and talk about some of the personal examples that you have from the, the patients that you serve through FORCE and that you're exposed to through your, your advocacy work with FORCE, which, again, for our listeners, stands for Facing Our Risk of Cancer Empowered, F-O-R-C-E, Facing Our Risk of Cancer Empowered. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. This episode is sponsored in part by ASI, Genentech, and Amgen. We have to take another quick break, but we will be back with more right after this commercial break. Your life, your health, your network. Voice America Health & Wellness. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. 
Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Today we're talking to Lisa Schlager and Karen Hurley about living with the risk of developing a hereditary cancer. My name is Linda House and I'm your guest host today, filling in for Kim Tebaldo, who will be back with you next week. We've been talking about what options exist for people who are at risk for developing hereditary cancer. And we wanted to talk more about what can you do after you find out that you carry a gene mutation and your risk has increased. And Karen, in the last segment, we ended with you talking about some of the anxiety and how patients work through some of the anxiety to make good, informed decisions about the best option for them. And maybe you could say more um, about how do patients cope emotionally as they're going through this process? Mm -hmm. Okay, sure. I think the number one uh, message that I try to give patients is to trust in their resilience. Uh, We know that people are highly adaptive and can uh, cope with situations that they never would have imagined ahead of time that they would have been able to live through and live well. This process does take time. Sometimes people will talk about a new normal, and that's intended to be optimistic that you will, you know, adjust your, your thinking. At the same time, that can kind of gloss over the feeling, well, I liked my old normal just fine, or, you know, maybe there's a a grieving period for the old normal. But um, we do have um, innate psychological mechanisms that kick in, and these are available to everybody. Resilience is not some magical strength that some people have and some people don't. We all have that capacity to, um, to stretch and change perspective. Uh, number two, um, social support is so important. Um, it's really important you have at least one person in your life to whom you can say anything and who can listen to you without judging. Uh, and then number three, um, there, you know, there are certain uh, techniques that we know of that make good um, emotional first aid. Um, there's a famous uh, phrase, one day at a time, uh, that comes out of 12-step. It's famous for a reason because it's, uh, it's a really good um, emotional Band-Aid. Uh, you know, it's taught to uh, people who have deficient coping mechanisms uh, for a reason. It's easy to remember, and it really does just slow things down enough so that you can start to allow that natural adjustment process to happen. Another thing when people, when people are really anxious, I say, well, what would you say to a small child who was feeling very anxious? Because if you can find tender and reassuring words that you would say to a child like that, you can also say those words to yourself. Mm-hmm. And Lisa, you actually have experience with this personally. You found out that you carry the BRCA1 gene. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and, and how you've coped and what you've done to manage your risk? Absolutely. Um, I'm happy to share. So just to clarify, we all have a BRCA1 gene. Um, my BRCA1 gene uh, has a mutation. <laughs> so... Um, after uh, I, I learned that I carry the, a BRCA1 mutation after my paternal aunt, that's my father's sister, was diagnosed with uh, premenopausal breast cancer in the late 90s. 
And because our family is of Ashkenazi Jewish descent, and these mutations tend to be more prevalent in Jewish families, she was asked to take part in a research study to determine if her cancer was, in fact, hereditary. Um, We didn't know of any strong family history, but we didn't have good medical records on our family. So once she learned that she did indeed carry the BRCA1 mutation, my father was tested and found to have the same mutation. So my testing followed, and I learned that I inherited the mutation from my father. So it's important to note that both men and women carry these mutations, and their children have a 50% chance of inheriting the mutation. Um, as we discussed earlier, carriers who have this um, have three basic options, increased surveillance, chemo prevention, or preventive surgery. Um, I was 32 and just recently married with no children when I learned of my mutation. So I chose what I felt was right for me at the time, which was increased surveillance. And I followed the um, NCCN guidelines for high-risk women, which include... Um, breast self-exam. They recommend starting at age 18 if you are um, at increased risk. I was 32, so obviously um, I was there. Uh, They also recommend a clinical breast exam twice a year starting at age 25, as well as alternating mammograms and breast MRIs starting at age 25 or um, 10 years earlier than the earliest age onset of cancer in the family. So, for instance, If the earliest cancer in the family was breast cancer at age 37, then the recommendation would be 25. Or if you're going with the 10 years earlier uh, rule of thumb, then the age of 27, which would be 10 years prior to that 37 age. And so every six months I was doing breast MRI and mammogram. uh, And for ovarian cancer, um, I followed the NCCN guidelines, which at the time recommended transvaginal ultrasound, and CA-125 blood test screening um, starting at age 35. I actually started that um, when I learned of my mutation at 32. Um, I will say that over time, my attitude about surveillance changed. Uh, I went ahead and had two beautiful children and um, was getting older, and so as I approached my 40th birthday, my doctor said, Lisa, you need to remove your ovaries. The NCCN guidelines state that, you know, the best way to prevent ovarian cancer at this point, because we have no early detection, is to undergo a salpingo oophorectomy. So I did, in fact, uh, remove my ovaries and uh, fallopian tubes at the age of 40. And within a couple of years, um, unfortunately, they had discovered some uh, precancerous cells in my breast. And I ultimately did decide to go ahead with a um, prophylactic bilateral mastectomy, which was a very big and difficult decision for me. Um, but uh, as Karen said, I discovered my new normal, and I feel very comfortable with the decisions I made at the points I made them. Um, and I think it's a very individual thing. Surgery is not right for everyone. Surveillance doesn't feel right for everyone. And it's something that each woman has to work through um, in her own time. Well, and thank you for sharing your story. I think it's so important for, for others to to hear that as they think about their their thought processes and how they go through the journey. You know, what's clear in listening to you, Lisa, among other things, is that this is really complex. And whether you're talking about someone who would be at risk for breast or ovarian cancer or some of the other types of cancers, 
melanoma, prostate, colorectal cancer that we've talked about earlier, um, it's clear that I, I, even being a nurse, would need the direction of someone who's really a professional at looking through all of this, and that would be a genetic counselor. And so, um, you know, talk to the listeners about how, how do you go about finding a genetic counselor, and in particular, what if there's not a genetic counselor in your area? What are your options? I think that's a, a really good question and an important one at that. So um, most major medical centers do have genetic counselors on staff these days. Um, so especially if you have a major cancer center nearby, a large hospital. Um, I know I live in the Washington, D.C. area, and every major hospital in the area, or almost every major hospital, has at least one genetic counselor. Um, in some cases, if you live in an area where you're in a more rural area, for instance, or um, the you know, you go to a community cancer center or a community health center that doesn't have a genetic counselor on staff, sometimes they will refer or recommend um, you out to see somebody at a different location. Um, if, however, you don't have access to somebody within your region, um, individuals can receive genetic counseling from a service such as uh, Informed DNA, which has certified genetic counselors available via an 800 number. Um, so if um, you, you didn't have somebody in your area, ideally face-to-face interaction with a genetic counselor or a geneticist is always recommended. But if that's not an option, the other option is doing it via telephone with somebody who is trained. And... Um, Informed DNA, for instance, um, would counsel the individual over the phone, and if genetic testing was warranted uh, based on their risk factors, they would work with um, a woman's health care provider to ensure that um, she received the appropriate testing uh, for whichever genetic tests were, were needed. Thank you. And uh, Karen, you know, I just wanted to cover something with you. And uh, we heard Mm -hmm. Lisa talk about, uh, you know, around the age at which there's recommendations for people to receive uh, genetic counseling or genetic testing. So, you know, can you speak a little bit more about that? You know, what is the recommended age and, and does it differ according to, you know, cancer risk or is that sort of a standard? And what advice would you have for, um, you know, individuals who, have determined that they have a mutation and they have children, um, you know, and when they're interested in having those children tested. Right. This is a really um, great area, and I'm glad that you brought it up. So we've been focusing on on uh, BRCA, so it's just, uh, it, you know, it's, uh, we need to be clear that the um, recommended ages for testing will vary depending on what uh, syndrome uh, we're, we're looking at. Uh, so, um, if someone had questions about that, you know, the, uh, the most appropriate person to ask would be a genetic counselor. So, but let's take the example of um, BRCA mutations, uh, the current NCCN guidelines that um, Lisa has been referring to is the age of uh, 25, because that is the age at which you would start taking some kind of action. So, uh, either, uh, you know, uh, starting with intensive screening and or uh, at least starting to think about uh, surgeries. But screening uh, typically doesn't start before the age of 25 because the risk of uh, having a a BRCA-related cancer before that age is so very low 
that um, it, it uh, wouldn't be worthwhile to be going through the uh, screening. Now, that is to say, to say that, you know, the risk is not uh, zero. As my old uh, driver ed uh, teacher used to say, the deers don't cross at the sign, so cancer doesn't necessarily obey those rules. But at the same time, so, you know, it's always a balancing act of knowing when uh, at a population level the risk starts to accelerate and then how does, how does that play out at the individual level? Uh, so the recommendation is based on knowing when the risk starts to go up for the group of people at risk as a... Um, that said, um, you know, I think one of the most challenging things uh, for, for people who are facing hereditary risk is this possibility that you can pass on a mutation and but that inheritance is random. You know, till, uh, people are motivated, parents are motivated to protect their children, and then here's something that is so important to their child's well-being that they don't have any control over. No one would want to pass these on um, if they could help it. So, um, so sometimes parents will respond to that lack of control by trying to figure out, well, where do they have control? And so, and that comes into uh, conflict with their child's growing need for autonomy. So there, there is a balancing act and, a, and, and communication that has to happen um, around what is going to be the child's best interest, especially when you're thinking about a cancer risk that might not, not manifest for decades uh, in the future. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a challenge for, for many, many people. Thank you for addressing that. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's show is sponsored in part by AstraZeneca, Millennium, the Takeda Oncology Company, and Purdue Pharma. My name is Linda House. I'm your guest host today, filling in for Kim Tibaldo, and we will return with our final segment right after the break. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer, it's a lonely word terms I don't understand, choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. 
help with finances and access to care. All behind you a breakaway from cancer, created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're nearing the end of our show today, and boy, has it been an incredible show. So in advance, I'd like to thank you, Karen, and you, Lisa, for being here with us. You've just provided us with invaluable information. Um, And I want to close with a couple of things because this will be a shorter segment, and I want to really get to some important issues for patients and their families. Um, Lisa, I am going to start with you. Um, You know, we hear that cost is um, sometimes an issue. So could you just speak briefly to cost? And then I'm going to ask you if you can go into providing our listeners with resources for additional information. Absolutely. So you're right. There, There are a lot of questions about cost. Uh, related to genetic testing, and it's true that genetic testing can be expensive, um, but it's important to understand that most insurance plans will cover the cost of both counseling and testing if you and your family meet uh, the guidelines um, for a high-risk family or if you have a personal history of cancer that meets those guidelines. Ideally, the oldest member of the family will be tested, or an individual in the family who's actually been affected by cancer. But that's not always possible. So um, one of the things a genetic counselor can do is help you um, meet the criteria that your insurance company needs to pay for that testing. Um, It's also important for people who are on Medicare. Uh, Medicare will pay for testing for individuals who have already had cancer, which can be informative for treatment and follow-up care as well as uh, helpful to other family members. Uh, It's also important to note that under the Affordable Care Act, young women who have not had cancer but who meet the criteria for family history are eligible for counseling and testing at no cost as a preventive service. So that's something new, and that's one of the perks of, um, of the new Affordable Care Act. If a person cannot get insurance coverage or if their deductible is too high for them to afford, Financial assistance is available through the companies that do the testing. Um, There's also uh, an organization called the Cancer Resource Foundation, which offers assistance for genetic testing costs. And some chapters or some affiliates of the Susan G. Komen for the Cure will offer assistance. Um, So those are great resources. As far as um, additional information, uh, emotional support, you know, questions specific to cancer or hereditary cancer. There are some great organizations out there. Um, we've spoken a lot about genetic counselors. Individuals can go to the National Society of Genetic Counselors website to find a genetic counselor in their area. There's actually a search function where they can enter their area code or state and find genetic counselors near them. Uh, I work with FORCE, as you mentioned, facing our risk of cancer empowered. Um, 
866-288-RISK is our helpline. Uh, we're also on the web and on Facebook. And we have an eight, uh, that 866 helpline is available in both English and Spanish for anybody who has questions about hereditary cancer. Um, there are other organizations such as Sharsheret, which are specifically for Jewish individuals, Bright Pink, which is specifically for young women affected by high cancer risk, um, who, you know, what we call pre-vivors, Young Survival Coalition, of course, the Cancer Support Committee and Gilda's Club, they're phenomenal resources, and Living Beyond Breast Cancer is also a great resource uh, for individuals who have had breast cancer. So all of these organizations are very good. They're on top of the information um, and can be extremely helpful. Um, specifically, though, if you are affected by hereditary cancer, FORCE has 50 outreach groups throughout the country, and uh, you can go to a support meeting and speak to other people who have been through this experience. Great. So, and let me just ask you quickly, because we've got two minutes before we close the show. Um, can anyone come to FORCE, or is it just for women with breast and ovarian cancer? So anybody who is uh, affected by hereditary cancer in general. So it can be a family member. It can be somebody with Lynch syndrome, with somebody who has a history of cancer in their family, but no mutation has been found. We focus or have focused historically on breast and ovarian cancer, but there are many more mutations out there. And the reality is that hereditary cancers affect families all across the board. So FORCE is available to support anyone affected by hereditary cancer. Great. Thank you. And Karen, I am going to give you the last word. If you could just reiterate a couple of key important items that you want our listeners to remember about today's conversation. Uh, So I think the thing I would want to get across is that um, learning about hereditary risk is challenging. We've been talking pretty factually, but we're talking about uh, things that are, you know, we're talking about people's um, lives. We're talking about um, histories of illness and loss, but also of hope. So sometimes people worry that learning about their risk um, will actually cause them to have negative emotions that will then make it more likely that they have cancer. But it's important not to live in fear of your own emotions. A really empowered place that you can go to is to have compassion for all of your emotions for the ups and downs of living well with hereditary risk. Great. Thank you so much. And we have so much more to cover. I'd like to invite you guys now back for um, another show. We'll do definitely do a part two of this if you would be willing. Oh, it would be my pleasure. Um, this information is, is uh, uh, so important uh, to get out there, and I appreciate your willingness to um, to keep the dialogue going. Oh, no, Same thank here. you. We will um, get it on the book. Books. Yeah. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Again, I am Linda House filling in today for Kim Tebaldo, the president and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. A couple of resources I want you to have before we leave today is you heard Lisa mention the National Society of Genetic Counselors. Their website is www.nsgc.org, as, as in their name, National Society of Genetic Counselors, NSGC. And the Facing Our Risk of Cancer Empowered, the FORCE website is www.facingourrisk.org, all one word, facingourrisk.org. 
org. If you have an idea for an episode of Frankly Speaking About Cancer, we invite you to please share that with us. Send your topics to news at org. The Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and over-the-phone support. If you or someone you know is faced with a cancer diagnosis, you do not have to do it alone. For more information about our programs, please visit us at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. There you can find information, you can find a location that's near you, and you're more than welcome to call our toll-free helpline at 1-888-793-9355 to speak with a licensed counselor Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and they will also have a list of resources in case you have additional questions after the show today. Until the next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.